0: Church, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 7th chapter, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. We're continuing in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We have a few more Sundays that we will conclude Matthew chapter 7 in the preaching and teaching of this message series. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Matthew 7, verse 12, very well may be if you were... To ask someone to sum up the essence of Jesus' teaching, they might allude to this passage. Arguably, it very may be that, that Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 is one of the most familiar passages of Jesus' teaching ministry. So, whatever you wish in the English Standard Version that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The, the slogan, paraphrase of this passage is. is Maybe the most ubiquitous of all of Jesus' teachings do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Decades ago, Norman Rockwell painted a painting that sort of encapsulates his interpretation of this passage. You see it before me. It has the uh, title, the, the Golden Rule. It has, as the, 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 the essence of it, the paraphrase that I just said do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And notice how Rockwell, I, really portrays that this passage unites both Christians together, Christians and other faith traditions together, and even Christians and those of no faith tradition. Rockwell would see in this passage this unifying force, and there is truth to that, at least that intellectual ascent. It, it, you're hard-pressed to find somebody who is going to say to you, you know something, the golden rule, really bad advice. Uh, you, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone say, uh, at least seriously, do unto others before they do to you. I mean, you, you, you might have that sentiment in someone's heart, but love, respect, dignity, boy, we can, we can swim in those words. And those are words that are familiar to our culture, whether you're in a church or outside of a church. I don't think the issue with the golden rule is a lack of understanding of it or a lack of familiarity with it. But really, it is a lack of implementation, isn't it? In your life and in my life, it isn't that we need more theological understanding of this passage. Rather, we need to live out this passage. Mark Twain commenting upon this very fact, said it this way, that what, the, what has become of the golden rule? It exists, it continues to sparkle, and it is well taken care of. It is exhibit A in the church's assets. As we pull it out every Sunday and we give it an airing. And then Twain says, it is strictly religious furniture. A contribution plate, or any of these things. Then he says, it is never intruded into business. So the problem isn't that we don't know the golden rule, it's that we don't live by it. It's a motto that we give intellectual assent to. And the question then becomes, can anyone live out the golden rule? Is there the possibility of living a life of love? And I want you to see that there is the possibility of living under the teaching of Matthew chapter 7 verse 12, in your life and in my life, but it, but it is not found in just that verse alone. Verses like this take on a life of their own. Verses like Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, become really, if we're going to be honest, sort of akin to a fortune cookie platitude. It, it's something that's really quotable, but we lose its context. And if you lose the context in Matthew 7, verse 12, you will misunderstand the gospel. Verses 7 through 11 that precede this familiar passage give us some insight into the right ordering of theology and ethics, right ordering of your salvation, and then the love that you show to others. Notice that Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Verse 7, Matthew chapter 7. You seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now look in your copy of God's Word. Notice in verse 7 the verbs that just one after another spill out from the teaching of Jesus. Ask, seek, seek knock. Now the question becomes, what are we asking for? What are we seeking after? What are we knocking for? Now notice that the answer to that is contained in this passage. Notice again in verse 11. We're asking for his good gifts. We are seeking his good gifts. We're knocking to receive the open door to his good gifts. Now all of the teaching of Matthew 7 verses 7 through 11 really should echo to us. We, we should hear this and say, hasn't he already talked about this before? And the answer is yes. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, he's talking about how we should pray before he gives us the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. He says, don't pray like the pagans. Don't just go on babbling. Think that the more words, the more verbosity that you have, then God has to answer your prayer. But pray to your Father who desires to Love you. And so he gives us this analogy. What father would hear from his son, Hey, dad, I need bread, and the father respond by giving him a stone? What father would say, Hey, dad, I need what? I need a fish. What dad would respond by giving his son a serpent? So much more so were our heavenly father grant us good gifts as we ask, as we seek, and as we knock. Now this passage, many teachings in the Bible can be taken out of context and it becomes a pretext. Unless we are misconstruing this passage, we need to understand that Jesus isn't saying that prayer is you... Saying your prayer and then treating God like a divine vending machine. He isn't saying that anything that you ask for, he will grant you. Like we pray and then we put in A7 or B6 or C3. And that God is obligated to answer our prayers in the context of what we think we need. No, a good father at times says no. A good father at times says wait. A good father at times says yes. Now he grants us his good gifts. Now what is the context of his good gifts. Well, think about it in the context of what we ask for, seek, and what we knock for in terms of our salvation. Notice how Jesus is construing salvation. It isn't that you become a follower of Jesus after you perfectly do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Notice that's not the case. If you thought that your salvation was based upon the uh, end of your life coming to this tally. How much more have we treated others with respect than we haven't treated others with a lack of respect, that that's what's going to get you into salvation. No, Jesus is saying the way to salvation is for you to ask. The way of salvation is for you to seek. The way of salvation is for you to knock. And the gift of salvation is only given through the free, gracious gift of a heavenly father. Now, salvation is not a maze. It's not a labyrinth. It's not an achievement. It isn't a treasure map that you have to go left and then go right, and you get this clue and then that clue, and then finally you come to the top of the mountain and you ascend some sense of moral superiority, and it, it is at that point that God the Father says, Yes, you have done enough. Now you're a follower. No, it's rather the opposite. We must ask because only he can give it to us. We must seek because he is the sole source of our salvation. It's only he that can open the door to our sin-soaked heart. And in light of that, in light of that right ordering, then we're able to live out verse 12. But verses 7 through 11 precede verse 12. And this is so important because so many times we take this passage and we sort of dangle it out of its context and we might get under, we might live under the impression that what it means to be a Christian is that if we do unto others as we would wish them to do unto us, if we do that more often than not, then we're a follower of Christ. If that's what you think, you will always go down the road of despair and depression and despondency because this is this is just the truth all of us fall short of this passage every one of us in this room falls short of perfectly living out this passage so we need someone who can rescue us from our inability to truly love others as we would wish that they would love us. We always fall short of this. And this is the ordering of salvation all throughout Scripture. You turn to the Apostle Paul and his teachings. You have Ephesians as an example. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. What is it? It's your problem. It's my problem. It is the solution in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then, in light of what he has done for us, chapter 4, then we're called to what? show respect in the workplace. We're called to love our spouse. We're called to treat our uh, kids and children with respect. Romans is another example. You have 11 chapters that outline so clearly that Jew and Gentile alike are sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is in all of us an Adam tendency. We choose that. We are nurtured in that. But there's a new Adam, Jesus Christ, who has lived a perfect life and has died a saving death for your sin and my sin. And if we would confess to him, then he would save us. If we would ask, if we would seek, if we would knock, then we would be saved. And then we come to Romans 12 and it says, Therefore, therefore, in view of God's mercy, well, Paul, what is God's mercy? I've told you this for 11 chapters. It's what you cannot do in your own strength. It's because you cannot live out the golden rule that I have come to do that perfectly. And through faith that you have in me, then you're able, imperfectly, all of us are imperfectly, but it isn't. That we perfectly live this out and that's what saves us. It is that we are believers and so in light of that foundation, we're able to live a life of love. Not that that's going to earn our salvation, but because we are saved. So I want you to see the possibility of life of love. I want you to see secondly in this passage here, focusing especially on verse 12, I want you to see the freedom of living a life of love. Notice in this passage, again, in the English Standard Version here, it says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Boy, there is a freedom to this. 613 prohibitions and commandments were were detailed by a faithful rabbi of Jesus' day. So 613, count them up, of of things to do and to not do. And what Jesus says is, I'm going to make this really, really simple. If you want to live a life that you are in my will. Well, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. He, he sums up all the law. He sums up all of the prophets. A, a kiss and cousin of this passage right here is a passage that we're going to find later on in the gospel. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. You remember the teacher of the law comes to Jesus and wants to trick him? And how does he trick him? He says, what is the greatest of all the commandments? What does Jesus do? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know what he's doing? He's quoting Matthew seven verse twelve. He's drawing upon the very teaching and the Sermon on the Mount, and this is freeing for your life and for my life because too many of us have an incorrect perception of what God's will is for our life. We oftentimes think of God's will as the next place that we need to go. That Dr. Seuss book, all the places, oh, the places that you'll go. And we think of God's will as, do I go left or do I go right? We think of God's will oftentimes, where do I go to college? That is important. Who do I marry? That is important. I'm not denying that those big, major crossroads decisions are not a part of God's will. Of course they are. And it very well may be that some of you are in those kind of major crossroad decisions. Do I take this job opportunity? Or do I not take this job opportunity? Do I relocate my family or do I not relocate my family? Do I it is endless. But much of life is not lived in the fork in the road of those major life decisions. Most of our life is lived in the everyday of where we find ourselves to be. And at times we think that God's will is sort of like this. Have you seen the largest corn maze in the nation? It's in Illinois. And if you go to it every year, there's a different theme. So a few years ago, the theme was Ringo Starr and John Lennon and George Harrison and Paul McCartney, the Beatles theme. Every year, there's another elaborate theme. And one of the one of the the trends with each year is that it's impossible to get out of. It it is intended to be frustrating for the person that goes through the maze. And so the way they help you with this is is that the person who's the owner of this in the fall, he hires individuals that are planted in the maze. And when you go into the maze, you're given a bell because eventually you're going to come to a place that you cannot find your way out of this maze most often, and you will ring that bell lest you have a panic attack in the middle of this maze, and one of the employees comes and finds you and takes you out of the maze. Oftentimes we think of God's will in this kind of way, that God has this elaborate maze, and if you took the wrong turn two years ago, then you forevermore are out of God's will And you can't find your way back to it. There are some of you in this room that are paralyzed. You're paralyzed by a decision that you made in high school or college early in your career. You're paralyzed by a decision that you made in your marriage. You're paralyzed by a decision, and you think that forevermore you're stuck at a dead end. And this is the freedom of Matthew 7, verse 12. God's will isn't so much what do I need to do next. God's will is, who am I called to be wherever I happen to be? Who am I called to be? How am I to treat others? What is God's call upon my life to make disciples and to be faithful to his calling to love him and love others? That is freeing. Yes, There are times you have to make a decision. Yes, you need to seek wise counsel. Yes, you need to pray through it. But oftentimes you're living in the normal everyday life where you've got to figure out what is God's will. And that's who you are in that situation. That's looking more like Jesus wherever you happen to find yourself. This is the freedom of living a life of love. I've shown you the possibility of living a life of love. And I want you to see the scope what do I mean by that? Well, what is so freeing about this passage is, is that it applies itself to the intricacies of your life. I do not have the time, nor would you wish that I had the time, to talk about the endless ways that this passage could be connected to your life. And that's the beauty of this passage. It is intended to walk with you outside of this sanctuary into your life. And you wonder to yourself, well, how am I to live out Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 in my workplace? Maybe some of you are in a workplace that is a workplace that you do not feel is the final destination. And to be honest, you sort of resent that you're there. If you're just to be honest about it, it is, it is a step on the way to the next step. And you're trying to figure out what is my purpose here? What am I supposed to do here? I need to get through this season. And what you are doing is you're just looking past The Mondays, the Tuesdays, and the Wednesdays, and the Thursdays, and the Fridays, to the final destination. Now this passage, what it does is, it is sort of a megaphone that says, no, 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 no. God's will for your life right now in Matthew chapter 7 is to think, well, is to think about your co-workers. How, How do you desire to be treated by your co-workers? Well, you desire to be heard by them. You desire for them to be honest with you. You desire for them to value you. You desire for them to respect you. And so as you desire that, so you prayerfully live that out wherever you happen to be employed. And what do you find? You find your way to God's will and his desire for you in your workplace. I remember just two years ago when Danielle and I were sharing with our children that we were going to be moving to Homewood. It we're really sort of at the two-year anniversary that we were telling our children that we were going to go preach in view of a call. We we're going to move to a place called Homewood, Alabama into to the greater Birmingham area and serve in a church called Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. And of course, at that time with three boys, their major concern was leaving friends and having to make new friends. But one of God's faithful ways that he ministered to our family, that there were little boys and little girls who thought to themselves in the cafeteria, what would I want someone to do to me if I was new to the school? And so there were people that God utilized to be Nice and kind to our children and we can look back two years and there's some of you that are going to school I know you don't want to hear that I know it's still June but it won't be long until you're going to start fourth grade or you're going to start sixth grade or you're going to start eighth grade or you're going to go into high school and there's going to be that new person you don't know who it is all of your friends you've got your group and then it's this passage that's going to walk with you. It's this passage that's going to say, no, don't just go sit with your friends, but maybe go and sit with this person. Because why, if you are new to the school, how would you want people to treat you? And I bet you would want someone to stop and say, hey, my name is David. What's your name? I don't think we've met before. There's some of you in this room that are, that are wondering, what is God's will for my marriage at this time? And so often we think of marriage and we think of God's will as a lack of the correct information. If we just had better communication strategies, things would be better at home. If we just had better financial software to be able to get us on the same page, oftentimes we think issues are around of a lack of information. So, so we have this elusive kind of, we wish that we had the next book to read, or we wish we had the next conference to go to, and then if we could get that, it could fix what seems to be broken. But oftentimes in marriage, what ends up broken is when we live a life of I, me, and mine. And we constantly see our spouse through the lens of how they are not meeting my needs. And here is Jesus, the megaphone to our soul, saying, what would it look like for you to see your spouse and say, I desire, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to love my husband or to love my wife in a way that I desire to be loved. I desire to be valued in this marriage. I desire to be heard in this marriage. I desire to be forgiven in this marriage. I desire to be loved in this marriage. And so we have Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, calling us to the specificity of all of our life, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the home, whether it's in our neighborhood. And when we as Christians, live a life of love, I tell you, it is immensely countercultural. I don't know if you're familiar with the writings. I know many of you might be. Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, he was the director of the Human Genome Project. He was the director of the National Institute of Health. And he also is an author who's written a book called The Language of God. He's a brilliant man, Ph.D., M.D., He's a brilliant man, but he's not only brilliant intellectually, but he's a man of faith. He's a committed believer, which has made him unique in that public intellectual world. Years ago, there was Time Magazine deeming certain journalists and, and, and scholars as what was deemed the, the new atheist. So there was this growing upsurge of writers and public intellectuals that challenged the veracity of Christianity. And one of their names was Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens is a British journalist who is now deceased. But at that time, he, he is a man of, of tremendous wit. He's a man of tremendous skill. He, he's a tremendous writer. There's no denying that. The things that he could do with his pen were things that were wholly unique gifts. And one of the things that Hitchens did was in his life, he was an ardent opponent of Christianity. He was a committed atheist. And so Collins and Hitchens ended up really sort of going on circuit tours where they would debate in colleges and various symposiums about Christianity and atheism, and they would go back and forth. Well, in the process of this, they become friends this committed Christian, and this committed atheist. In the midst of their touring, Hitchens is diagnosed with a terminal disease, a terminal diagnosis of esophageal cancer. And Collins befriends him, even in a greater way. One of the first people to come to Hitchens' house to talk with his wife and his family about some of the cutting-edge treatments for the type of cancer that Hitchens had was Francis Collins. Now, he didn't only receive the, the love of Francis Collins, but he received very specific criticisms from Christians as his diagnosis comes to light. In Vanity Fair, he would write about some of the, uh, the mail he got. Some of it was, was hateful mail. Some of the mail that he received from Christians was mail saying, this is why God has punished you. He desires to silence you, and you're getting what you deserve. You will burn in hell and judgment forever. But he wrote of another Christian response. And in a Vanity Fair article, he, he chronicles his friendship with Francis Collins, and this is what he writes about Collins. He described him as one of the greatest living Americans, one of the most selfless Christian physicians, who had been kind to him, kind enough to visit him in his own time, kind enough to discuss all sorts of novel treatments with him, and kind enough to pray for him. Why would Collins befriend Hitchens? Why would he pray for him? Why why would he spend that kind of time with someone who was not a follower of Christ? Well, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 is the answer. And you probably don't know Christopher Hitchens, but we all have a Christopher Hitchens in our life. We all have someone that we like and that we love who does not believe in the truthfulness of what we hold dear. It might be an uncle, it might be a cousin, it might be a coworker, and you might be tempted to think, if I could just learn the right rhetorical skills I could convince them of the claims of Christianity. If I could just read another book and have another argument, if I could just give them this, it's a lack of information that they have. And I think Collins understood something that we need to be reminded of. Apologetics is really good. Books are wonderful. There's no doubt about that. But to so many people, Who disbelieve the claims of Christianity, the only thing that will convince them is your heart, your love. I wish I could tie this neat little bow on this story. I I wish I could say that as Francis Collins was holding the hand of Christopher Hitchens, that his last breath on earth was, I believe. That's not how this story ends. To my knowledge, Christopher Hitchens did not have a deathbed conversion. To my knowledge, he did not have a, a, a thief in the night deathbed conversion. But this I know you will have the opportunity to show people what it means to be a follower of Christ. Your words matter, no doubt. But what they will know us by is what? Do you remember the choir sung this for us? They will know us by our arguments. They will know us by our stances. They'll know us by what we're against. They'll know us by our vitriol. They'll know us by our condemnation. No, they will know us by our love. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you today grateful that you have shown us love that we do not deserve in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son Jesus Christ. Today we're reminded of that. Today we are reminded tangibly of your sacrifice for us and the difference that it makes in our life. It's in your name we pray, amen.